0: Ninth, works at Frank Hennenlauter. Welcome back, everyone. So we're going to be talking about five different movies today. And uh, two of them are standalones. Three of them form part of a trilogy. But they all have one thing in common. They are made by the New York-based uh, director Frank Henenlotter. For those of you who don't know him, he's one of those uh, he's an indie director who is most known for sort of body comedic body horror movies, although he himself has said that he prefers the uh, term exploitation movies because in his own words, and this is fairly true, the movies he does has a certain attitude that a lot of Hollywood movies don't, and there are a lot... Uh, raunchier, if you will, than more traditional horror movies. So I'm just going to go through them, tell you a little bit about them. I'm going to avoid spoilers as much as I can here. Um, some of these are on Shutter, and I think a few. I think some of the others are uh, available free on certain uh, streaming services. So long as you are willing to put up with the ads. So first up, we're gonna go over, I'm gonna go over the Basket Case trilogy. Now the basket, uh, the original Basket Case was, I believe, his first feature film. And essentially, what this is, is that we follow this sort of like <laughs> shy, withdrawn young man wandering around New York City with a wicker basket containing something. We don't really know what it is at first. And this is a bit of a spoiler, but it's mostly just so I can you know, actually talk freely about the two sequels. Uh, we find out a little later on that what's going on is the thing in the basket is his severely deformed conjoined twin brother who was separated from him when they were like 12 years old. And the whole plot, we find out pretty early, is that they're going around tracking down the doctors that performed the procedure that separated them and uh, killing them out of, you know, revenge for being separated. And we get some interesting character stuff here because uh, the, you know, the sort of normal-looking brother named Dwayne Bradley. Uh, Dwayne is, you know... There's this sort of, like, fleeting romance subplot that goes on while he's there, but apparently him and his brother Belial, they have a sort of telepathic link. And whenever Dwayne wanders away from, like, completing this task for too long, uh, Belial just starts sort of, like, you know, telepathically harassing him, basically. Uh, And overall, it's, like, between this and two of the other movies we're going to talk about, it's they really captured like the public image of the time. Like everything is just sort of like grungy and sleazy looking. It's definitely like one of the you know parts of New York City that was you know back before like Forty Second Street got cleaned up. Everything just looks like slightly run down, uh, or if it's in good condition, the decorations look kind of garish. And the sort of puppetry and stop-motion effects for Belial are really cool because he's not really... He doesn't even really look human aside from his face. He just looks like, for lack of a better phrase, he just looks like a tumor with a, a giant tumor with a pair of arms and a human face on it. Uh, The sounds that he makes, like they're just completely fucking disturbing. It's just like... It's like this weird mix of like a moan and a scream and they just sort of like bass boosted it. And he's also just like ridiculously strong. Like there's one scene where it's them tracking down one of the doctors and he has like one of those big steel doors that you'd see at like a walk-in refrigerator for those of you that have ever worked in like a restaurant. And he just, like, with three hits, just knocks the whole door off the hinges. (laughs) He can also, like, climb on walls. And it is actually kind of sad because we get, like, the backstory where basically their father was sort of distraught over losing losing his wife. And in order to get some kind of, like semblance of normalcy in the house, he hired a bunch of doctors to just sort of, like, come over and discreetly remove Belial. And the plan was just to sort of abandon him and leave him for dead, but Dwayne saved him. And, uh, well, kind of like the Phantasm movies, it basically picks up exactly... the sequels pick up exactly where the previous one left off. So I won't give away what happens at the end of the first movie, but um, Dwayne and Belial are presumed dead. They get brought to a... Ho- turns out they're not dead. They get brought to a hospital and escape. And there's this lady who's sort of in this eccentric philanthropist. Um, we get the backstory that she's like a doctor who's taken an interest in studying people that have severe deformities. But press harassment basically led her to abandon her work at least publicly and she's very secretly running this home where it's just these people that for to be charitable to be blunt about it would basically qualify as circus freaks in a lot of older days but, you know she and her granddaughter swing by and rescue Dwayne and Belial from the from police custody after they managed to escape the hospital um there's some scary moments but this and especially the third one kind of delve more into the comedic aspect which you know part of that is why I think Lauder was kind of on On the mark when he described himself as an exploitation filmmaker and not a horror filmmaker. There's a subplot involving a tabloid reporter who's trying to get into the house and, you know, get the reveal of the story. And part of the character moments going on here is that Dwayne is starting to feel like he and Belial need to go their separate ways now, at least now that, like, the whole killing the doctors thing is. It's been finished at this point. And this kind of culminates at the end of the movie where it ends like this way. Dwayne, something happens to Dwayne. He has a nervous breakdown. He kills someone. And then he freaks out, grabs pile and in a complete 180 of his attitude earlier in the movie, he tries to, as he puts it, make sure they'll be together forever again. And he just actually tries to, like, stitch Belisle back into his torso. (laughs) And then the movie ends there. And finally, Basket Case 3, The Progeny, as it's called. Like, Like the previous one, it picks up right after the end of the second movie. So, after their aunt's friend... Uh, Ruth, as she's called. After she walks in on Dwayne having his little freak out, it cuts to uh, Dwayne in a straitjacket in a padded cell several months later. And, yeah, this is where the series just goes straight into full camp territory, just because in the previous one, there was a, a person with Deformity similar to Belial, who is just named Eve. It's basically just Belial, but a she. And, well, Belial's going to be a father, as it turns out. And he does, and it's kind of weird later in the movie when you actually see all the kids, because it's like a whole litter of them. It's like a dozen. And they all just look like Belial, but like really tiny. It's... I'm not going to say any more about this movie just because I don't want to spoil it, but Bilal's kids are like this weird mix of disgusting and also kind of cute. I mean, more so than a normal child, but you know what I mean. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so, moving on. Is probably my personal favorite of the bunch is Brain Damage. Uh, this was made in between... Uh, basket Case 1 and 2. Uh, it actually is a little cameo from... Kevin Van Hintrick. I believe that's how to pronounce the, his name. There's a scene where the main character of this one's on a subway and he runs into, you know, Dwayne on the subway. He's just sitting there with his wicker basket. And there's this young man named Brian who is suffering from a brief but rather debilitating illness so he's not he's still not feeling too good and after going around after wandering around the city for a little bit he ends up getting attacked by this sort of like tiny slug creature and he becomes host to it and he finds out that it's giving him this sort of like drug chemical that gives him you know, pain relief, and just this general feeling of euphoria. The catch, though, is that the parasite has a taste for human brains now, so he goes out and just ends up killing people when he's not really aware of it. I think this is probably, like, my favorite just because of the mix of the horror and the dark comedy aspects of it because some of the kills are just kind of ridiculous. And to top it all off, the Parasite does this really, like, goofy voice. Uh, Apparently the voice actor was John Zacherly, who was basically like a TV horror host. He had one of those sort of, like, Spangoolie or Elvira-type shows where he was basically just sort of giving a little intro to... where he was just giving a little intro to these horror movies that were in public domain. Sometimes he would do, like, kind of darkly comedic skits. So, yeah, this is, as I said, one of my favorite ones just because of how silly it is and still has the, like, general tone of a horror movie. And then finally... (laughs) Yeah, this is probably the silliest just because of the title, is Frankenhooker. Uh, opens with this man's birthday party. We get a setup with our main character, Jeff Franken. He's sort of young man with ambitions of becoming a doctor, uh, though he's working for a gas and electric company in New Jersey at the moment. And it's kind of stated that for some reason he's gotten kicked out of a few medical colleges before. We're not entirely sure why, but he's also sort of, he also has a sort of knack for mechanical stuff, mechanical devices. And this is kind of the inciting incident here, is that the birthday party is for his girlfriend Elizabeth's father, and she reveals that she got him, like, this, like, powered push mower as a present, and Jeff has tinkered with it, so it's remote-controlled, but she fiddles around with the remote too much, loses control. And it basically comes on, runs her over and kills her. We cut later to Jeff in his room and he's poring over this large anatomical drawing with these doodles of, uh, schematics, like where to put a transistor, where to put metal plates on it. And the, and a picture of his girlfriend's face is standing in for the head. So, after he, after his mother comes in and has a little conversation with him, you know, it doesn't take long to see just how fucking cracked he is. And this is where the title comes in. And this is where... This is where the synopsis on Shudder kind of drew me in when I started watching it, because it's just so ridiculous, and then you have the title on top of it. Essentially, he's going to try and pull a... Well, as you might imagine, a Frankenstein. Or, you know, for those of you who are more classically inclined, he's going to basically try and be Pygmalion. But what he's going to do is he's going to go into New York City... He's going to hire a couple of prostitutes, kill them, and then use their bodies for spare parts. And I just want to say, I forgot to look up the actor's name, but the actor playing Jeff is just wonderful. He's this nervous wreck, but he's also kind of cold and calculating. Um, I feel like if this movie were more serious and he was playing just a regular type of serial killer, he'd be perfect for it. Because he's just got that sort of slightly socially awkward attitude that a lot of people expect from serial killers and that have sometimes been actually the case. And there's even this moment where he gets his hands on some cocaine and he goes to the trouble of synthesizing this really, really potent form of it in the hopes that he can just give it to these women and it'll just, like, stop their hearts. So, you know, one, there's no real pain, no risk of... Da- two, there's no risk of damaging the organs he needs. And three, probably nothing will get traced back to him. Um, it does end up getting used, but we see a test with a guinea pig, and it doesn't go as intended, so it was actually kind of a bad thing when it ended up being used. And also he just goes on these like weird and insane rants to himself where he's trying to justify explain away the behaviors if he's talking to somebody. There's no real logic to it, but still. And yeah, like I said with the earlier uh, with basket case and brain damage, it's very it's very late 80s, early 90s with how grungy and sleazy everything feels. The motels, the clubs, they all have this like garish decoration to it. They look like they haven't been cleaned in years. Uh, when he goes to the club, it's not only cramped and crowded on the dance floor. He goes into the like bathroom and back to talk with like the local pimp. And there's just graffiti everywhere. There's a bunch of people in there just crowding around smoking crack. Yeah, the whole thing is just it. It looks like what a lot of people think of when they think of, like, the bad part of a city. So, yeah, sorry if that was a little rushed. Um, yesterday's episode was almost an hour and a half long, so I'm going to try and keep these slightly condensed if I can help it. Um, especially because my DVD player is broken right now and I don't have access to a lot of the special features on the DVDs. But, yeah, that was Five by Frank Henenlotter. And, yeah, if you wanted to sum up what he is, he's an exploitation director who focuses on kind of like, you know, sexual imagery, dark comedy, especially kind of satirical dark comedy. um, Especially given the sort of karmic twist ending at the end of Frankenhooker, which, you know, just go watch the movie. It's free on Shudder. If it makes any difference, Bill Murray himself is apparently a big fan of this movie. But, yeah. So it's body horror, it's weird kind of like semi-sexual imagery in a lot of cases, although, you know, there's basically no sexual violence in any of these movies, so that's nice. And there is a good amount of dark comedy. So, you know, if you feel like that's going to be up your alley, give it a watch on a streaming service. You can find it. Uh, Arrow Video, at least in the U.S., has good copies, both of Brain Damage and Basket Case. And I think Basket Case 2 and possibly 3 are available for uh, Shout Factory releases. So that's going to be all for today. I'll be back tomorrow with three movies from Toby Hooper. These are some of his lesser-known ones, but they still have their cult following. So stay safe. I'm going to be signing off, and I hope everyone here has a very good day.